A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 178 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zoom, as well as Stitcher, and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Herleman. And with me, like the Emperor Palpatine to my Lord Vader, the EU guru himself, the Count of Continuity, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. The episode is proceeding as I have foreseen. Or something like that. Good, my master. And joining us once again from the Star Wars Report website's original Rebels Roundtable, the D's of our threes, the one, the only, Jonathan Brenner! Hey everyone, thrilled to be here, talking some Sith. That almost sounds dirty. <laughs> well, it's been a good, uh, a good weekend for Star Wars fans here. We're recording this right around the same time that uh, Siege of Lothal has just aired, so you're going to have Jonathan with us for this episode, talking Lords of the Sith, and then expect us all back together again for Rebels Roundtable very soon, possibly even aired before this one hits the internet, uh, talking about Siege of Lothal. So uh, the gang's returning together after a short, uh, uh, easier period here for schedules. Yeah, I didn't get my summer break. I was promised a summer break. (laughs) <laughs> no kidding i mean commentaries and all kinds of plans and then it was like yeah we're gonna put it out in june okay well here at star wars beyond the films we ask the tough questions questions that have bothered you for a long time or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on you ponder about star wars and so do we this episode we explore the full power of paul s kemp's lords of the sith just how did the most powerful two sith in the galaxy measure up well now before we get too deep into spoiler territory we'll give you that quick spoiler free rundown just be sure to jump off at tarkin's arrogance Well, I guess to kick us off, I always try to provide some context here. In this case, what we're dealing with is a story that takes place in the same year as Tarkin. So five years after Revenge of the Sith, 14 years prior to the events of A New Hope. And this story takes place right before Tarkin. Uh, Basically, they do sort of run together to be able to fit into this year. It's a little misleading. The opening crawl says eight years after the Clone Wars ravaged the galaxy, blah, blah, blah. Um, Pablo Hidalgo did confirm when I contacted him that that actually means eight years after the beginning of the Clone Wars, not the end as it sounds. So this is taking place in the same year right before Tarkin. There was a little bit of confusion because of some of the other date references within the book. I would also note here that if you have a subscription to Star Wars Insider and picked up issue 157 either through the mail or on the newsstand, there's a short story called Orientation. That short story takes place basically in the gap between Chapter 4 and Chapter 5 of this book. So if you're trying to read chronologically, stop after Chapter 4, hit the short story, pick up 
right there where you left off. Uh, broadly speaking, what you got here is a story in which there is a conspiracy trying to kill Palpatine and Vader. Uh, the Free Ryloth movement on Ryloth, led by Cham Syndulla, who we know from the Clone Wars and who we know as the father of Harris Syndulla, they are trying to free Ryloth from the Empire, but also have a broader effect on the galaxy if they can. And their terrorist attacks have finally managed to draw the attention of the Emperor. And the Emperor decides, with Vader as sort of an object lesson to him in obedience and the Emperor's power, to actually visit, with the Imperial Star Destroyer Perilous, to visit Ryloth. And in the process, a, a, a conspiracy is put in place with the help of an Imperial officer named Belcor Dre, who wants to bring down Deli and Moors, the local moth, who he finds slovenly and not really doing her job, to try to bring down that Star Destroyer and then basically lead the audience on a merry chase trying to track down and take down Vader and Palpatine on the surface of Ryloth. It's a much more, I think it's a much more clear-cut story as far as hero and villain as we've gotten in the past. With the new canon, it seems like A New Dawn had a very clearly defined villain and hero, and they were up against each other more directly. And then we got Tarkin, where it was this tiny band of rebels versus Tarkin and the Empire, and it was very lopsided, and they didn't tend to face off directly very often. And then you had you know, Heir to the Jedi, where it was just this the villain is the nebulous empire out there. This time we do have clearly defined factions. You've got Moors and her Imperials, Dre and his Imperials briefly sort of working with him as a conspirator. You've got Chomsundula's Free Ryloth movement. You've got the Imperial group, mainly uh, Palpatine, Vader, and a couple of guardsmen who are their own little faction here. So in that sense, it's a much more clear-cut story than we got before as far as factions go. It's very much a very quickly moving story. It's very action-oriented, not a lot of uh, long segments of narration to give us information, like Tarkin looking up information on the conspirators back in that novel. Um, it's very fast-paced, I would say. The big question I always try to ask with these new novels, though, is whether it's essential when it comes to the new canon. And I think this is the first time we might have an essential one, but I'm not sure. I think this one, its place in the new canon is really going to come down to, do we see these characters again? Like, Cham Syndulla is a major character in this book. Hera is not. Hera is only mentioned a couple of times. How does this lead to the rebel groups, if at all, that we see, for instance, in the end of Season 1 of Rebels and beginning of Season 2 of Rebels? If there is a direct line connecting them that we see as the canon grows, this becomes a very important linchpin in that story. Until then, it's a cool story, I think, for those who really like Vader and Palpatine and like getting into Vader's head. They get into Vader's head much better than most books have. But I'm not sure if it's essential yet because, yeah, Chom is a loose end from the Clone Wars to a degree, but is it something you would need to be able to understand other stories? Not really. Not yet. See, it's the Vader angle that that leaves me saying that this is a quintessential Emperor and Vader story that we've been waiting for. You know, for me, like when I think of the Vader and Palpatine stories, I always think of Vader being pitted against Xavier or, or you know, some other person, some proxy that Palpatine wants to, you know, threaten Vader with. In this case, we didn't get that. But we're in a new canon where the relationship between Palpatine and Vader and how much the galaxy knows about Palpatine and things like that are, are all back in the fray where you're like, okay, what's exactly going on? And I felt this book really answered a lot of the questions that I was 
curious about. You know, I feel like, you know, all the shifting sand has been solidified again and I'm standing on concrete once more because of this book. Uh, I really enjoyed the, the depth of the relationship between Palpatine and Vader, but the Cham angle was the one that really got to me. I mean, by the time I got to the end of this book, uh, you know, I, I teared up. I was listening to the audiobook and Jonathan Davis was was doing it and he was really nailing some of the characters. I really enjoyed his Belcor. Uh, when he was doing Belcor, there was parts where he's talking to a, a character named Ophi and he's almost going crazy in the way he's the way he's playing it. Like there's a, a part where he's like, Cham, I see you. <laughs> I see you, Cham. I'm like, the way he, he did these characters was really working. And when he gets to to one of the, the end moments, I had this very distinct feeling like it was star by star all over again. And Jason's dragging Jane away from Anakin. And I, I teared up, man. I was welling up during that moment. Uh, and I was really getting a kick out of a lot of what this book was providing. So for me, I did feel like this was a quintessential read. You know, it, it's it's not a, a must read for the overall canon. But, but like you said, Nathan, those that are liking Palpatine and Vader, this is definitely a story you're going to dig. And for me, this was the Palpatine Vader story. I the stuff with Cham, Sandula, and the Free Ryloth movement, and even Moors and Belcor, it was all almost secondary to me. And Nathan, something that kind of came to mind when you were saying about, you know, very distinct good and evil, I didn't have that with this novel, or at least not the way you would expect. Because the side I was almost rooting for, and maybe this says something about me, is I was rooting for Palpatine and Vader. That, you know, that here they are trying to, I guess, solidify their hold, and you have these people essentially trying to assassinate them. And I don't know what it is, but maybe it's just the culture we live in. When somebody's trying to assassinate, I automatically kind of go to, okay, well, maybe you're not the, uh, the, the most positive of sides if you're, you're trying to assassinate. And I know that's very black and white, but I don't know. I mean, I, was, I found myself kind of rooting for Palpatine and Vader. And even though I knew that they were going to survive, obviously, there were a couple of points where I'm like, well, damn, how are they going to get out of this one? And I was really surprised that Cham survived this book. I expected him to die. And I think that they are really setting us up for connections between the Free of Ryloth movement and the Rebels animated series. I think the trick here is we do have clearly aligned factions. I'm not sure if there's necessarily a good and evil that's sort of like the the good, the evil, and the gray areas in between. But I did find that while it's very action-packed and we do have these clearly defined sides that we didn't necessarily get with Heir to the Jedi, there's not a lot of direct conflict, though. I mean, for Palpatine and Vader and their faction, it's basically they're less fighting the actual people trying to kill them than they are just battling the wilds of Ryloth. And... That, to me, made this a, a very action-packed story, but at the same time, one that never really felt like there were high stakes until the very, very end when factions actually do start to coalesce together. It, it almost felt like all these different groups had their own storylines that were going on that did intersect, but that intersection was very light most of the time. Uh, as for the assassination side of things, I find it interesting that that that's the point where Jonathan says it, it sort of blurs that line between good and evil and who to root for, because this is something we're going to see again. I mean, just the, the cover text itself of Dark Disciple will tell us 
a big part of the, the push of that book is the Jedi finally deciding they are going to send a mission to try to flat out kill Dooku during the Clone Wars. And that sort of moral question is a driving force of that book. So it's interesting that now we see this twice in just as many books of heroes deciding that the way to handle the situation is to flat out kill the adversary. We'd think nothing of it if this was killing them on a battlefield. But when it becomes staged, planned political assassination, no matter how you can get to them, not just on the battlefield, that does, especially from an American standpoint, uh, start to reshape, or a Western standpoint, reshape our thoughts on what is good, what is evil, and what is morally justifiable, imposing our ideals on the galaxy far, far away. Not a terrorist, but a freedom fighter. I mean, I think Cham said it enough that I was kind of buying into it, at least. <laughs> yeah, but the, the Mujahideen and Al-Qaeda would have said the same thing at a different point. You know, to, to, to everybody's point of view, they're a freedom fighter, not a terrorist. No one. So would the American calls, Patriots. Yeah, exactly. So would the American <laughs> Patriots back in the American Revolution. Nobody thinks of themselves as a terrorist. They think of terror or fear as a tool of freedom fighting. Well, and that's the angle I liked was like when you were in each faction, you did feel like they felt they were in the right or their side was the side that needed to prevail. Uh, you know, Moore's was doing her own little thing. She was very gluttonous with a lot of stuff. You know, Belcor and, and the way he just despised her and just the revulsion that he had for her, the way that Cham was able to, you know, latch the hook in Belcor and reel him in. I, 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 I think that was a really fun chapter, and I think that's where I really started to like the Belcor character. At one point, I thought Belcor was going to end, you know, end up getting drugged into the rebellion even more and become a, a bigger player or something. Like I was really hoping to see, you know, some more play out with that character as it went along. But I think overall, I had a really fun ride with this story. It, it definitely met up to a lot of the expectations I had. I was basically looking for Palpatine rolling up his sleeves and getting his hands dirty. And the way that that played out and the way Palpatine would, would bring it up to Vader, you know, like th there were references to like, you know, everybody here has to die. No one can know I'm here kind of thing. And and I was really getting a kick out of that and watching where it was playing and stuff. And I don't know for me, you know, Nathan, you talked about the fast pacing. I really felt like the pacing of this, this could have been an episode of the Clone Wars or even Rebels with the way, you know, it's like you're going off to Ryloth. It all happens on Ryloth and then the episode's over. I mean, it, it just had great pacing. I really enjoyed it all the way around. I couldn't I couldn't agree with you more Mark. This was a fun read. And I've I I like you heard the audiobook. First I read it and then I listened to the audiobook. And nice. I also take from it the perspective that my boys listened to the audiobook with me. Uh we've been doing a lot of driving and my son Jonah's always like turn on turn on Lords of the Sith, turn on Lords of the Sith. And nice. they they you know even though the, some of the political machinations kind of go over their heads it, they enjoyed it too and i think that's the mark of a real successful star wars book is it, it can appeal to different you know different levels different stages and everybody can get something out of it and it's one of those things you could kind of almost go back to reread and get something even more out of it mm -hmm. yeah this one does seem like it of all the the new story group canon or whatever you want to call it books so far this is the one that has the most broad appeal it seems as far as the writing style, as far as uh, the approach that's taken. Uh, and you guys are right. If you were to stay too long in one particular uh, faction's point of view, say for a chapter or two chapters, 
you slowly start to say, you know what, I think this side's probably right. And then, of course, it switches, and it, it's just w very well done as far as the ride goes. It doesn't feel like there's really a lot of skimping going on in most areas uh, within the book. Now, I guess that should bring us into our spoiler territory with something that, you know, Jonathan, we were talking about previously, uh, that Jonathan was bringing up as far as where this could go. We had to kind of cut him off and shuffle him into the spoilers here. We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Now consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentients of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. You know, Cham talks about rebuilding and moving forward at the end of this novel, and we, you know, we learn in um, A New Dawn that the ghost is Hera's ship, and I'm wondering if part of that rebuilding is equipping Hera and then sending her off on those missions that she's on in A New Dawn. I think that would hopefully be where this is going. That's why I'm hoping that this is something that becomes essential in the long run, that it has those linkages, that it's not just, here's Chom's rebel activities, and it's just that Hera maybe sometime along the way hears about what her dad was doing, because she's completely absent in the story. She's yeah. somewhere safe, far away, uh, and just gets inspired by it, that there's some kind of direct linkage here, or maybe at some point we'll see a story in which Chom gets his hands on the ghost, and uh, maybe he does eventually die and leave the ghost for Hera or something. I'm I'm very much hoping for that kind of direct linkage, because why would you do a story so heavily focused on Cham Syndulla right now when it could have been any other rebel group, well, right? Well, I think the reason there is, I think Cham is the new uh, Belliblis uh, in a lot of ways. I mean, look at how successful he was as creating this huge army just on Ryloth. And by the end of the story, he's forced off Ryloth. I mean, he's basically Boba Fett leaving Mandalore. You know, really can't go back without the fear of death. Or, you know, that's the reprisal that's waiting for him. So he's going to rebuild out in the galaxy. When you think about that, you know, what he did on one planet. And now he's got the galaxy at large. I mean, I could see this guy setting up a lot of shops. You know, I mean, he could be the go-to guy for Rebel Base installment. Well, Jonathan, you're our, our fearless leader on Rebels Roundtable. Do you see a parallel here between what happens with Chom's group and what just happened with Siege of Lothal with with that rebel band? I mean, I don't think at this point, given when this is coming out, that it's that big of a spoiler to say that one of the big things within Siege of Lothal is that at least for now, it seems like that rebel band is going to have to leave that planet for a while and become part of something bigger than themselves. That's kind of what Chom's doing here. Do you think that was an intentional parallel? Are you seeing that or is this me reaching to try to connect this to something? Oh, no, I think there's a definite parallel there. And it's it, it's not only a parallel, but it's kind of, it speaks to the Empire's methods. I mean, when, and I'm jumping ahead, but looking at what Vader does on Lothal, I mean, he could very easily have modeled some of that after what, you know, what was done on Ryloth. And... I think there are way too many lines lines for it to be just coincidence. So the structure of the book, I would almost say the structure of the book is sort of an acts type of thing, like we would expect from Star Wars films, in that you've got sort of the preparation and then this giant battle 
uh, way more than I ever expected. This giant battle over trying to bring down the Perilous and trying to kill Vader and Palpatine that way. Then you've got essentially the search where all the different groups are trying to survive and trying to locate each other in some form or another. And then you've got the final act, which is basically, you know, the, the Sith Lords wind up finding the village, the, the odd Ryloth, Rylothian Twi'lek village that's just not connected to anything, and they have no idea what's been going on in the broader planet or the broader galaxy. And how is that going to mesh with this assassination mission uh, that is being carried out? I would say of, of all of that, though, the perilous battle was probably, to me, the big standout moment of the book, which is odd because it wasn't the finale. Um, from the structure of the book, was this something that, I mean, I mean, where did you guys find was that high point of the excitement? It's, it's an odd thing for me to read a book and feel like the high point of excitement was like a third of the way through. See, now I saw a couple of high points. I think a lot of peaks and valleys. I really liked the opening uh, battle, you know, where Vader really kind of establishes himself. It's a brief battle, but he really establishes himself as this almost force of nature, something that we're also seeing in Rebels, that he just basically takes back this ship from the Free Twi'lek movement, uh, a a munition ship that they had stolen, and he just... He's unstoppable, and it really almost sets the tone for what we see later. I agree with you, Nathan. The whole uh, the whole perilous battle really is, I think, the peak of this book, and it really kind of comes midpoint. And then after that, there's some, you know, there's some other major skirmishes. The uh, some of some of what Vader and Palpatine experience on Ryloth, and then how everything comes to a resolution at the end. But I can't really pick any one, I guess, what am I trying to say? I can't pick one thing that, that stands out more than the others for me. See, I it, it is a difficult one because it did kind of feel like at times with the the risk involved that it was kind of Vader's story. It seemed like Vader had the most to lose overall. You know, you felt like Palpatine was always in control. I think the perilous going down was the one moment where you're like, okay, if anything could possibly happen, this might be it. But I, I don't know. For me, when when Vader and them went up against the Lilac Horde, uh, and and the fact the way the Ryloths, uh, the Twi'leks themselves were talking about, you know, they didn't just go up against one; they took on a horde, and uh, you know, they decimated the nest. Like I don't know. I I was really enjoying that type of pacing and the way that they were going about the survival. But Vader's piloting skills, I think, were the were the most on point about all the different aspects of it. Uh, and, and I think the way that we got it, uh, you know, you're seeing through Isval's eyes at times and Pac and the other characters and, and yeah, Vader was unstoppable. And I think that that added to a lot of the, the action that was going on, but the perilous going down was the one moment where you're like, okay, are they going to get out of here? I mean, I, I liked how like in chapter five, there was this great moment where Palpatine to captain Lewitt, where he's like, uh, Lewitt's like, I'd be honored if you give the order, my Lord. No. Oh, no, Captain, said the Emperor, waving a hand. I'm a political leader, not a military one. Proceed as you would normally. I There were some very interesting comments from Palpatine and stuff as it was going along, but by the time we get to the end, they kind of made sense. And I don't know, I, I kind of felt like that that up and down ride of their you know struggle kind of went hand in hand with it all. And it did leave me with that feeling like Palpatine once again was in control of everything the whole time. I mean, there were, there were points where Vader was talking about his master's power and how his master had that uncanny ability. And it's like, 
that's always been the thing about Palpatine that has made him the scariest of all the Darksiders is his uncanny knack to know almost everything coming. I mean, even in the films, he knew Luke was a threat. You know, he's he saw his own death. Like, that's just how good Palpatine is at being bad. You know, going back to what you said about the pacing of the book, one thing that this book did that I don't think we see in a lot of Star Wars books is it'll retell the same scene from different points of view. And I found that very, very effective because even though you knew what was going to happen in some of those scenes, it it really kind of almost provided this this depth that, I again, I don't think we always see. Oh, yeah, it's it's done in such a way that it doesn't feel redundant. I mean, you see, you realize, oh, I'm seeing the same thing again from a different perspective. But there's always enough insights to the way that Kemp is writing those scenes that it feels like you got more out of it. Like, oh, you know, I'm glad he rewound that two or three seconds. You know, you see that sometimes with, especially when you got a TV show that goes from, you know, one episode to the next as a continued story. You might see the little teaser before the credits rehash something but add a little or tweak a little and and for some reason on television that drives me nuts but in books I love it because it gives us the insights that we didn't get otherwise you guys both mentioned something that I want to I want to pounce on here a little bit you both basically talked about how this book does a good job of making Vader basically a super badass Palpatine even more so but basically it's Vader as a force of nature as this great you know looming evil out there and especially as we get you know, early on, the scene where Pock's ship is being taken down by Vader, and you're saying, you know, your allies are dead, or whatever he says over the communication link, they don't know much about Vader at this point. He's not really well known in the galaxy. He's just this dark specter of evil that's just plowing through the heroes, and it really adds a sense of menace to Vader that we also get, as Jonathan mentioned, in Rebels, which I think begs the question, did Vader at this point, after how many stories were told, going all the way back to 1970? six with the novelization of A New Hope, but especially 77 getting into the early Marvel stuff, did Vader, thanks to how many times we saw him defeated and saw the character approached in different ways in the Legends continuity, did he kind of need like a rehabilitation for the new canon that he would come out as being the badass that he was in A New Hope as opposed to the way that Legends had sort of watered down the character over the years? Or did Legends handle him well enough that it's not so much rehabilitation as just, oh, well, they're getting back to his roots. I'm kind of torn on that one. I well, think it's definite rehabilitation. I, I think Vader had times in Legends where they, they kept true to his awesomeness, the overpowering evil that we see in the original trilogy. But overall, with as many things that they've had, the many times Palpatine pitted him against Vizer or whoever else was out there, it really watered down the threat level of Vader. Whereas now that we're in a new canon, and I think seeing it through the Twi'lek's eyes really helped because from their point of view, he was unstoppable. For me, it wasn't the EU that almost did in Vader's persona. I think when you go back to watch the original trilogy, obviously in episode four, Vader is this menace. And he's someone that... You don't go up against, you, you, you try to get away from, you try to survive. Much the same in Empire Strikes Back. The whole Rebel Alliance is fleeing from him, almost specifically. And then in Jedi, he's, he's less so. I think what happened is when we learned that Vader was actually Anakin Skywalker, he was diminished somewhat. 
And then when we go back to the prequel trilogy and we see Anakin start as a young boy and then a whiny, you know, teenager and then a very torn, you know, uh, you know, early adult. It, the man in the mask became, for me, almost kind of pathetic. He was sad. He changed the way I, I, you know, those movies changed the way I really perceived him. Mm-hmm. And then what they're getting back to with Rebels and with these is Vader, as I said, is becoming much more of a threat. And that's something the EU, I never got from the EU, but now I'm getting it. And I'm really, really liking it because, you know, he should be that menace. He he really is the symbol of the might of the Empire and what everybody you know what the what the rebellion is fighting against that the, the, this power that this this awesome force that can take anything and we got that here and i loved it and jedi was the most insulting installment cuz vader's beautiful black visage is sullied when he removes his helmet to reveal a feeble crusty old white man sorry i was, I was <laughs> channeling chasing amy there for a second um <laughs> No, I, th- I think there there is a case to be made for that. We've got a situation where Anakin, as Vader, has been humanized to the point, especially given how much we got of the Clone Wars TV show and how heavily they've leaned on the prequels in recent years. It's like, in a lot of ways, he's been humanized to the point where it's, oh, well, he was just sick and twisted because of his experiences, and the menace starts to go away because we think of him sort of as Anakin in the suit. Whereas what this book tries to do, it seems like, and Tarkin to a degree, but mostly here... It's that sort of shedding of the humanity, uh, getting inside Vader's head to try to see why is he, after saying in Revenge of the Sith how he wants to overthrow the Emperor, you know, I'm more powerful than him, I can overthrow him, and we can make the galaxy what we want it to be, yet here and in all these other stories, he's just following the Emperor no matter what. How is it that after 19 years when we get to A New Hope, he is still following the Emperor? What is it that keeps him in his place? What is it that finally breaks him of the notion of being able to stand out? What is it that causes him... To, to sort of give up, in a lot of ways, the humanity that he has. I think they did a great job of this recently in the Marvel series that we're going to be talking about soon. Um, in terms of one of the big moments, I think this is, I don't want to spoil it so much, um, there is a moment in the Marvel series that acts as the culmination of both the first arc of Darth Vader and the first arc of the new Star Wars series that basically has Vader learning something very important. And I think that's one of these crucial moments that starts to turn him against Palpatine again after years of not being willing to. It's like, how does his will get beaten down and yet still make him a badass as a Sith? And then at some point we have to see how that will starts to turn again against the Emperor. Because he can't be a lapdog all the time, but at the same time, if he's been against the Emperor for 19 years, it seems unrealistic that he wouldn't have risen up at some other point. That... I feel like that, unfortunately, that's the message that the Emperor is trying to get out of this book. Mark talks about him being sort of the, the mastermind. The, what always gets me in things like this book is when Palpatine's like, well, everything's proceeding as I have foreseen. It's a lesson for Vader. In this case, oh, it's a lesson for Vader in how powerful the Emperor is, so don't screw with him. Because they're going to Ryloth, and now we get to see the Emperor holding his own against all these these creatures. Sort of the man versus nature as opposed to man versus other individuals conflict that you see in books sometimes which i don't find nearly as thrilling as fighting other sentient beings but whatever um yeah the whole thing where he's fighting against the lilacs it's like wow it's like by the end of the book 
It's like the whole point of the mission, the whole point of Palpatine saying, yeah, let's go to Ryloth was, I want to remind you, Vader, of how powerful I am, so don't mess with me. Mm-hmm. For some reason, to me, that message is pretty weak and basic. I, I want there to be something more to Palpatine's schemes than, I just need to show Vader how badass I am. Well, and I get what you're saying there, but I, I have to stop and I remind myself, well, it's a new canon for everyone, not just for you know us. But you were mentioning you know, Vader being a badass in Legends, and the only book I can really think of that really kind of captured the sense of what I got out of Vader with this was The Dark Lord, The Rise of Darth Vader. That was like the only book that really put him in that, oh my God, he's a juggernaut kind of role. Uh, and that's what I was really enjoying about his character in this regard. But I like the fact that Palpatine would play up, you know, the, the apprentice angles, you know, and, and, you know, remind Vader of his station. You know, you are supposed to be looking at taking me out when the time is ready. And I'm watching you to make sure that you know that you know that I know. You know, it's like the inner wheels spinning there and, and testing Vader to find out where Vader's at in the grand scheme of things. You know, is he ready to make his move? I believe it was while they were fighting the lilacs that there was a moment where Vader Vader could have let Palpatine go down, and he chose not to. Now, on the same note of the idea of how powerful these Sith are and how powerful Palpatine is, uh, what about this angle that's really played up here of, as I think has been previously mentioned, how Palpatine is making a big deal in how he acts of not revealing himself to be a Sith Lord. I mean, as audiences... We didn't know that until Return of the Jedi. We knew that the Emperor was there. We knew he was this creepy cowled guy, or woman, ape eyes, or whatever, as the case may be, <laughs> back with Empire. But it wasn't really until Jedi that we get a sense of just how powerful he was and that he was a dark side force user, Sith Lord, etc., etc. In fact, I don't even think the term Sith Lord was applied to him un- until the EU started applying the name. And then we got his Darth name, of course, with Phantom Menace. Um... So I guess for the longest time, it seems like, especially since Phantom Menace, we just kind of took it for granted in the in the EU that for the most part, the galaxy kind of knew he was this powerful dark side force user, or at least the Rebellion knew it. They didn't think he was just a politician. They thought of him as a an evil on the level of Vader. And yet here we've got something much more akin to how we felt back in the 70s and 80s, where the Emperor is basically treating himself like this political figure, the way he did sort of... Uh, manipulating perceptions during the Clone Wars, and he's basically willing to kill to keep his secret, and he wants to make sure that that his powers, while known to Vader, are very much held in check. He's, as I said, he's not even willing to step up and take military command of the Perilous when it comes down to it. He's willing to allow the military people to do their jobs because, oh well, he's just a politician. I found that refreshing and felt very different. I don't know that if how much it was a conscious choice to try to be different from Legends, or if it's just the perception we have of the Legends continuity, but for whatever reason, it felt to me like this was a big departure to take this much more obvious route than, oh, well, all the Rebels know he's a Sith. And that's the way it should be. I, I mean, I gotta say, yeah. that is how how it plays, and that's that's always the sense that I got from the movies, that the reb the rebellion had no idea that you know palpatine was a sith lord that's why he never uh, you know that's why he never embraced the title of sidious and i think it worked really really well and i personally i prefer it that way you know palpatine is the you know the manipulator behind the scenes but vader is the one who actively 
you know, displays the mantle of Seth. And I think, you know, we talked a little bit about it with, you know, when we talked about Tarkin, but how much does the galaxy even really understand the distinction between Jedi and Seth? Well, yeah, that's the that's the angle I was the most curious about. It's like, okay, if Palpatine's hiding the fact that he's a Sith Lord, he's got everyone thinking that Vader is the Dark Lord of the Sith, and anybody who knows anything about Sith enough that knows the rule of two are probably wondering, who's Vader's apprentice then? Yeah, <laughs> that's an angle I really dig. And that was kind of always a question for me, which was, you know, the more that we got into this sense of, oh, well, maybe people do know versus don't know that he's a Sith, there's one, there's that question of, okay, well, how are the Sith going to be perceived? If the Jedi are supposedly all but forgotten, and we got the concept now, especially with the prequels and all, that the Jedi were rebellious, how would they respond to a Force user sitting basically on the throne? Uh, would the galaxy support it, or did the galaxy even really understand what was happening with the Jedi? But there's also always kind of been that most basic question after seeing Return of the Jedi, which was, well, if people knew this guy was an evil Force user... Why would the galaxy follow him? You know, I mean, it, it, you take Nazi Germany, the German people who followed Hitler saw him as a savior of their country. He's a whack job, but they thought he was the savior of Germany after the Weimar Republic and all that. Whereas here, you know, here's Palpatine. And you could make that same argument, well, they think of him as the savior of, of their society after what happened with the old Republic. But I don't know. I don't know. Because with Hitler, it was actions that he took, like the Holocaust, that people were trying to be willfully blind to. But it wasn't like he was out there proclaiming himself the Dark Lord, the child of Satan, in his leading or something like that. Whereas if Palpatine were to be an avowed Sith up front, you'd wonder how he could keep control of that galaxy if basically the acknowledgement among the people was, yeah, we're following a guy who is, without a doubt, proclaiming himself to be evil. So it makes a lot more sense to me that he's going to keep this a secret. Yeah, there's some things about Kemp's writing that I was really digging in this. Uh, you know, chapter six, he mentions restrooms. You know, I was really irritated about the fact they were calling them bathrooms, considering I wouldn't want a bathtub in space. But having it as a restroom, I was excited about. Uh, but the one that really got me really, I thought was a, a clever little twist was on chapter one. He mentions the V-Wings or he goes, or interceptors or whatever they're called. <laughs> I'm like, well played, Kemp. Well played. You know, find a way to get rid of that little, you know, well, which are they? Are they V-Wings or the interceptors? Well, they're both. And and the way he, he wrote that was great. There was a lot of really cool moments like that all the way through it. Uh, and I think one of the ones that, that gets back to what we were saying is the way that the Twi'leks would look at Vader, you know, the powerhouse that he was, the way that he would, they would look at him as being single-handedly doing this or single-handedly doing that. And it's, I, I don't know, I, I like the way, the words that Kemp chose, the way he he would combine the phrases and stuff. Uh, when we get to the stuff where it's it's between Palpatine and Vader and they're talking about the, the Sith angles and stuff like that, like, I, I just dialed right into all of that. The way that Kemp writes it just... It was one that as soon as I got to those moments, I, I had a hard time putting the book down until it started to slow down on the other things when it would bounce back and forth between the other groups. I'd find that kind of like my jump point off when I was doing different tasks. Like, okay, I can set it down and go and do something. But then I'd want to come back because they wouldn't stay in those spots very long. It was really bouncing back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Just enough to keep you wanting to just turn the page again. Also, Kemp took an interesting 
approach to, to things. And I think maybe it's some of the stuff we're seeing in this new canon. I was really surprised to see Orn Frita in this book. I mean, I was pleased that he, you know, he's still manipulating as a politician and he's keeping these almost figureheads in place to take the blame. And I think Palpatine says that later. And I just thought it was brilliant. It's like, wouldn't, wouldn't, don't you think that, you know, he's saying this to, to, to Orn Frita, don't you think that, you know, what I'm saying would come better from your mouth and be accepted by your people better than if I said it? He's still playing them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is the guy that said, you know, I am the Senate. But he understands the value of having them there. It's not going to be until A New Hope that he feels he's in a position to be able to disband them. It's it's that sort of master strategy for him politically that in a lot of ways seemed lost in the Legends continuity, if only because for so long the, the era between trilogies and the era of the prequels was basically off limits, right? Lucas is going to make these prequels. You can't touch it. Well, now the prequels are being made. Yeah, but we don't know how Revenge of the Sith is going to end. You can't touch the stuff in the middle. And even once they had free reign to do it, it was stories like Dark Times that focused more on Vader than on Palpatine's machinations. Now we're sort of getting to see that through line here that it was a big part of the prequels, but that a lot of times seemed like it got lost in the spinoff stories. Uh, speaking of getting lost in the stories, though, I want to make sure that we don't jump over uh, the other characters that are here. So let's kind of do a, a tour through some of the other major characters here and what we thought of them. Um, we've got, for instance, Isval, who is basically the second in command at this point to Cham, a, a Twi'lek woman. I found her... She, she made a great counterpoint to Chom in that she was more sort of the woman of action. He was the more contemplative one. It's when he starts to lean more on her way of doing things that things go awry, like the balance gets disrupted. The only thing about Isval that threw me a little bit was there's a moment that acts sort of as like an origin story hint for her, where she goes back and she goes into one of the slums on Ryloth and finds a girl that's uh, basically being taken away by Imperial officers to uh, do some some salacious things. And she's like, you know, I, I'm freeing you of that. I'm saving you from these Imperials. I'm saving you from, from basically a life as, you know, either a, a raped woman, a hooker, whatever she's, she's finding herself falling into, uh, an, an area in which she is abused sexually, mentally, and everything else, like Isfal was. I'm setting you up here with, you know, this room... Or, or this place to live for a year, blah, blah, blah. I'm saving you as someone saved me. And yeah, sort of this sense of this really rough background that Isfal went through that sort of drives a lot of her anger and her desire for action as opposed to being more contemplative like Chom is. It works in the sense that seeing that, we understand her better as a character. But I felt yeah. like of the way this book is so straightforward following these current threads of action, it kind of felt like that set of scenes, as as useful as they were, they felt like the one part of this book that was really out of place. It's like, and now for something completely different for a short time, and then we're back to the rest of it. Because there's not even really a transition very much between her leaving to go do that and coming back. She just kind of pops off for a while, does that, comes back, and there's not really a lot of connective tissue around it. See, I found that was the redeeming aspect for her because up until then, I saw her having an evil quality to her. I mean, I was likening her to the type of a person the Empire would use in campaigns. I mean, she took a glee in the death of the imps. And up until they showed that, I really had no reason 
why it was like, okay, she is taking a vindictive enjoyment out of this. And I was like, you know, how far is this going to go? You have Cham going on, you know, we're freedom fighters. We're not terrorists. And yet she seemed to be full on, like, let's go jihad. Now, Nathan, I see what you mean by that almost feeling like a completely different story. And maybe that would have been like a good short story to put someplace else. But I really found that interesting an interesting insight to the Isfal character and Isfal psyche. And again, it's the psychologist in me coming out. But Mark, I'm with you. This kind of paints her. She isn't a, you know, fight for, for truth and justice. She She's vindictive. She doesn't just want to save people. She She has this need to kill and to hurt and to maim the Imperials. She just doesn't want to defeat them. She wants to bloody them. She, I mean, and it goes into a lot of detail of what she does to this Imperial officer that, you know, okay, um, let's, let's be honest here, probably is acting in a way toward a Twi'lek not too dissimilar than some of our own servicemen acted in overseas campaigns. It, not saying that it's good and not saying that it's everyone, but we know it all happens. And she, I mean, she she beats this guy within an inch of his life and is ready to cut his throat if uh, Ryan, the Twi'lek she's saving, didn't stop her. Mm-hmm. And she had a visceral reaction to Ryan's reaction, too, which I, I think knowing the background there, it, I don't know, it explained a lot about the character that was missing. You know, I mean, there was so much curiosity. It's like, what really set her to that level? And knowing that, it kind of put my mind at ease and I was finally able to enjoy the character moment. There were moments there, like at the beginning, where I really, I thought she was going to die with the rest of the team, uh, you know, right at the beginning. There were a couple times I thought she was going to die. It almost made me start to think, you know, that angle about Vader being the uh, swashbuckling villain, you know, it could almost be said that the force at times could be Vader's biggest hurdle. It's like when he gives himself to the force, like, yeah, he's pretty dead on while he's controlling it. But when he gives himself to the force, like the force kind of just holds him back just enough for the good guys to get away. And yeah, we need a special episode, uh, Ryloth special victims unit, boom, boom, all about Isval's background. Um, <laughs> I do find it interesting that, that she does at least get some of that background. She gets a, a little section of the book to herself that gives us that insight into her character that they could very easily have just made into some quick little, you know, chunk of narration, like Chum looked at her and realized what she'd been through, blah, blah, blah. Here's the story. So he understood her actions or something like that. Instead, it was that show don't tell thing. We got to see a scene, albeit feeling a little out of place that gave us that depth uh, to her character. One of the other characters we get that is a major part of the story. I feel like didn't get really any background at all. And that's Belcor Dre, uh, the Imperial officer who, in basically working for Delian Moores, is tired of the fact that she is basically delegating pretty much all of her duties onto his head, and he wants out of it. He wants to be the new Moff, so he's willing to work with the Free Ryloth movement while he thinks that he can manipulate them into situations that will help him gain power when he eventually probably betrays them, where instead Sham is able to draw him in and draw him into the point where, you know, He's in so deep that he can't get out. Uh, but from a, a background standpoint, it feels like he really didn't get much of anything. He was just sort of the the opportunistic imperial officer stereotype that was made into a prominent character here. Did you guys feel like he had more depth than I'm giving him credit for? 
the character of Belcor, I really liked initially. I thought, wow, this could be something interesting. But as time went on, I just felt he became very one note. And actually, at times I felt like if he had been written out of the story earlier, it would have been a better choice. I, you know, sure, they used him to show that the moth was slovenly and she'd let things go. But after that, I mean, I didn't really see his point. See, I really was enjoying him. I liked I liked right out the get-go when he got fooled in by Cham and Cham's like, welcome to the rebellion. I really thought he was going to be uh, the character that kind of had the wool pulled back from his eyes and, and saw everything for what it was, not just Moore's being lazy and that drove him to the point where he was able to be manipulated in the rebellion, but him finally having that righteous indignation and he's just like, you know what, I'm casting aside all my ties to the Empire. I'm, I'm joining you guys wholeheartedly. But that wasn't the way he went. I mean, by the time we get towards the end of his character arc, I, I in fact, I, I found Jonathan Davis's version of the character even more entertaining because he was going nuts at this point. He was a character that was so out of his depth, so hands tied, so blackmailed into a position that was going to get him killed uh, that by the time he accepted his fate and everything... I, I, I don't know. I was really enjoying the character. I mean, I, like I said, with the moment he's talking to Ophi, uh, his dead body, uh, and he's sitting there going on and talking to him as he's going. And then when he finally gets to Cham, he's like, I see you. I see you. And the way he's laughing and the, the hysterical glee that it came over the character. I was really enjoying that ride. And maybe it's a name thing. I really like the way Belcor looks on paper. I like the way it sounds rolling off the tongue. And, you know, you know, maybe there was a Dre connection. I didn't think too much into that. I do like the fact that he did sort of follow his own path in a sense. He didn't follow the stereotypical, oh, well, now he's in with them. Uh, they're going to convince him to do things their way and that the Empire is bad type of thing. This wasn't the stereotypical Imperial turning rebel thing. He was just, he was trapped by the decisions that he made, thinking he was manipulating Chom, and Chom very quickly shows that, yeah, it was the other way around. Uh, the fact that he does wind up kind of cracking up when he gets towards the end, you know, he, 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 you can expect him sort of like sweating and his hair all must and whatnot and, yeah. and kind of jumping at shadows type of thing by the end. Um, I just think it almost would have been more interesting to see him and a little bit of his background prior to that so we would see how much he was becoming unhinged from and we see him sort of as the clear-cut Imperial officer, but even when we meet him, he's already started to work with the Free Ryloth movie. He's already started to step away from his duties to gain power. And we see how that becomes unhinged as his his motives start to fall apart because the things he's been wanting are now completely out of reach. But we don't really get a sense of who he was prior to wanting to do this or who he was as an officer that made him want to get into the Empire in the first place that, that would provide that type of clear-cut black and white to where he ends up versus where he started. Um, the one character who does change quite a bit, I would say, although the one that I expected to change the least, was Delian Morse, the actual yeah. moth. Because she starts out, she's in like a drug haze from Spice. She's basically just lounging around, chilling with a hut buddy, um, leering at Twi'leks, and we'll get into the, the social issue that, that this book raised and that sort of thing here in a little bit. Um, and it, it seemed as though she was someone who was just going to be this dull character who's not really doing much of anything, that even when she finally got up and tried to do something, would be ineffectual at doing it because of how much she had let things slide. And instead, 
this is very much, you know, this is the person snapped into reality. You know, she goes from uh, laying back and doing whatever, delegating all the authority to realizing she's being betrayed, and she shows how she got that moth position in the first place. She's able to command the loyalty of certain individuals, uh, to carry out an attack, to make decisions about how to try to find Vader and Palpatine to save them. It's, she she really became more effective and more officer-like than I ever would have expected by the time the book finally comes to an end. It still doesn't necessarily excuse the way she was at the beginning, but the fact that she didn't just stay that way and become a one-note character that's sort of a joke throughout the book, that she showed that she did have a more serious, more effective side, I found kind of impressive because that's not usually where we'd see that kind of character taken in a Star Wars book, it seems. Well, that's the character that I really hope they bring back. Uh, you know, I was hoping she was going to die and Belcor was going to be kind of the main villain towards the end. But the way that they set her up, she's in a good position. She could be not necessarily a Thrawn-like character, but she could be maybe a Naminor-style character, a character that keeps coming back, that is getting more mean, more vindictive, more good at her job, more good at taking down rebels. I would love to see this character come back and be used time and time again in that regard. You know, make her a threat to the rebellion, make her have a chip on her shoulder for the rebellion because of this event. You know, that would make this book even more essential overall. You know, have these characters that weren't Vader, that weren't, you know, the Emperor, the the you know, the side characters that had nothing to do with anything, elevate them to a point where now they're a bigger threat. And I think that that also raises this book's value in the canon where it sits right now. And I think that at the end of this book, even Vader, or at least the Emperor, feels that way. You know, they talk about does Moors need to continue being the Moth? And I, Emperor, the Emperor, Emperor says, well, she's, you know, I, I don't think she'll go back to the way she was. I think we've, I think she's learned her lesson. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he never questioned her loyalty. I mean, he, he's like, she might be a little lethargic, but <laughs> her loyalty's never been in doubt. <laughs> And that's always been Palpatine's thing, right? I mean, Palpatine knows people. Palpatine can manipulate with the best of them. And a lot of it comes down to I me. Mean, it, it seems a lot of times, especially in the Legends continuity, that when he's manipulating, it's that he's just foreseeing events and understanding how one event can lead to another. But you go back to the prequels and the Clone Wars, and a lot of his manipulation is much more about manipulating people. I mean, people despise, well, many people despise Jar Jar Binks. And certainly the way he was handled in Phantom Menace could have been done in a less slapsticky, goofy, stupid manner. But the whole purpose of making him the fool in Episode 1 is so that when we get to Episode 2, it is his desire to do good and the supposed purity of Jar Jar as a character that makes him the perfect one to be manipulated, you know, if only Senator Amidala were here, into being the one who gives those emergency powers to the Supreme Chancellor. Uh... Palpatine is able to manipulate through, in that case, Masamita, manipulate Jar Jar into getting that power. And every step along the way, it's manipulation, manipulation, manipulation. You don't do that without having a really good grasp on people. But so often that seemed like it was lost in the Legends continuity because we were focusing on the big manipulations. It's kind of like Thrawn, right? Thrawn became kind of unbelievable as a character when you get to something like um, Allegiance or Choices of One, I guess it was. Because it seemed like he was able to manipulate things on this galactic scale by understanding what every single group was going to do and what this event would lead to, etc., etc. Whereas when he was at his best, it was back in the Thrawn trilogy being able to 
for instance, study art and psychology to get a sense of what this individual leader, because of their background, their species, their actions, are going to do. Um, it's that difference between manipulation that is unbelievable and requires almost an omniscience versus a believable form of manipulating people to get the things that you want, which played out very well. Uh, do we want to add anything more to the to the character discussion here before we delve into the elephant in the room? Well, I do because you're talking about manipulation, and you know we don't talk about force philosophy that often, and and this kind of goes hand in hand with what you're saying. In chapter six, page eighty one. Vader's going up against a bunch of buzz droids and he reaches out and he uses his hand and makes a sweeping motion with the force to sweep them all away. He also, we see him use his hand to make the force choke motion and stuff like that, which makes me wonder again, why he can't throw force lightning. I mean, if it's just a gesture that's needed, you know, why, if, if he had no full arm, like he does, why couldn't he just send the force lightning down and just blast out the rest of the mechanics or just have it extend out from his body? That's the one aspect that, that when I read that moment where he's using the gestures and the way it, it, it's working, you know, like if he's using his arm to make the gesture and it's sweeping out and doing the same thing, like, shouldn't that then mean that there's nothing impinging him from using the force lightning? That, that was just one thing that just jumped out and was screaming back at me. It's like, now that we're in a new canon, I would love to see Vader using force lightning, even if it's got some consequences. Maybe he blows off the hand at the end of the arm or something, but I see really no reason why with the power of the force at his command that he couldn't throw force lightning. And then besides that, there was in chapter 10, I know Nathan, you didn't have the audiobook, but me and Jonathan did in chapter 10. There was this great music cue when Vader was thinking of Ahsoka. Ryloth grew larger with each passing moment. A memory stabbed him as sharp as a blade. He'd floated alone in an escape pod over Ryloth once spinning high over its surface after crashing a cruiser into a droid control ship. Another name bobbed up and broke the surface of the Sea of Memory. Ahsoka. He called her Snip sometimes. He pushed the errant recollection aside and focused on his task. In moments, he'd redirected enough power from backup batteries for at least a few seconds of thruster operation. He did not hesitate. He fell into the Force, looked out the viewport, let himself feel the motion of the ship, and activated the thrusters. The ship's spin slowed and its angle flattened. Another quick burn stopped the spin altogether and the shuttle was on a path that would at least allow for re-entry. And he still had a small amount of battery power left. Behind him, the door to the cockpit slid open and he sensed the presence of his master. The ship is nearly powerless. I will get us down though. No doubt, his master said, and sat in the co-pilot seat. We have been in situations like this before, you and I. Vader said nothing, though his mind turned to a battle over Coruscant, shortly after he'd killed Darth Tyrannus. As always, his master seemed to fill all available space with his presence and push against Vader with his power. Over Coruscant, his master said, and at other times. Vader glanced over, but his master's hooded eyes stared out through the nest of his wrinkled face and revealed nothing. Ryloth filled the viewport as the ship descended. 
Seeing the mottled browns of its surface, the smears of green and tan, dredged memories of other times up from the sludge of his distant past. Names he rarely thought of anymore. Anakin. Mace. Plo Koon. The shuttle hit the atmosphere too sharply and skipped and bounced, the metal shrieking under the stress. He burned the thrusters for a fraction of a second, right at the angle of approach, and reduced the jarring bumps to mere vibrations. Flames from the friction of atmospheric entry sheathed the ship. Fire surrounded them. Fire. Mustafa. Obi-Wan. He used his ever-present anger to burn away the memories, but the charred husks of the past clung to the forefront of his consciousness. Padme. He rarely allowed himself to think her name. His rage slipped his control, and he squeezed the control stick so hard it cracked. His breath came hard, fast, loud. He felt his master's eyes on him, always on him, the weight of them, the questions they carried. He knew his master could see into him, through him. You are troubled, my friend, his master said, his voice calm while the ship screamed through Ryloth's stratosphere. And it goes into the whole action of, of you know, him looking back on his time and, and all that as he's doing the flying and stuff. But the music cue that they used for that was brilliant. Absolutely loved it. And then the other thing that Kemp did was he, as well as what we see with Tarkin, we still see that there are some clone troopers out there. In fact, one of them was one of the Red Guards. I thought that was a nice little touch as well. Stepping back to the production of the audiobook, it really is top notch. And I have to say, as much as I enjoy reading the books, and I'll always read them first, I really enjoy listening to the audiobook productions. Yeah, I, I think reading the books first is probably the key. Cause when I listen to the audiobook first, I'm like, how do you, you know, is Val, you know, the name sounds really cool. What's it look like, you know, and uh, the lilacs and things like that. When I was just hearing it, I had no idea how it was spelled. <laughs> so I was just kind of like rolling with it, which made remembering the characters harder. Cause usually when I think back to it, I remember how it's spelled. And then I'm like, Oh yeah, that's that guy. Totally lost on it. Speaking of Moors and the characters, this was a big moment for diversity in Star Wars, you could say. We've seen a lot of changes happening in the Star Wars universe fairly recently when it comes to diversity. All of a sudden, for instance, unlike what you got in the early Marvel days in the early 80s, late 70s, we're starting to see more diversity racially of characters. Uh, Nikari in Heir to the Jedi is human, but she's black. We find out in the orientation short story that ties into this book based on the artwork that apparently Ray Sloan from Back in the New Dawn is a black character. Um, Han Solo's apparent wife or estranged wife, or maybe it's just a, a comedic, you know, sitcom-esque mix-up thing that we meet in the Marvel series that caused a big hubbub, is a black woman. Um, we're seeing stronger female characters showing up more often. We are starting to see more racially diverse characters, at least in terms of black characters, as opposed to now I guess we need to see more that aren't just white or black. Let's recognize that humans come in other ethnicities and races also than just those two. Um, but one thing that Star Wars really hadn't dealt with too much, it had to a degree back with Karen Travis's works with the Mandalorians, um, but Star Wars hadn't delved too much into the LGBT community, uh, gay characters or bisexual characters, characters who uh, represent essentially a part of modern society that often is underrepresented in these types of stories. 
Um, there was, of course, a big hubbub about it. But really, all that comes out in the book is that Moth Moores happens to have been a lesbian. We find that there's a there's a reference, I believe, early on to her uh, eyeing a female Twi'lek servant. But really, all that we get in terms of the way they play this out is there's a conversation between her and Steen, who is one of the officers loyal to her. And uh, she says, I've been absent, Steen. Yes, Steen Borkus. Things changed after you lost Mura. Uh, M-U-R-R-A. I don't know how you're supposed to pronounce it. Mura is what I thought. When was that? Four years ago now? Moore's nodded. She hadn't heard anyone else say her wife's name in a long time. She died in a transport accident on Coruscant. A fluke. A system malfunction had flown her and ten other civilians into the side of a building. For months afterward, Moore's had imagined what Mira must have felt as the transport accelerated. Terror? Resignation? The loss had eroded her, then broken her. Things didn't change, she said. I did. After Mira died, she found herself purposeless and content in her purposelessness, just drifting. She turned hedonistic, growing lazy, etc., etc., etc. That's it. It's given to us in such a way that I found... I, they, they made such a huge clamor about the fact that we have a character here who is from the LGBT community, if we put it into modern American context, and yet it's not... Here's a character who's lesbian that's up in your face. Here's a character that we're really going to kind of play on that aspect, that that somehow defines the character. Instead, she's played just like any other character who's lost a husband or wife to an accident, who saw that change their character. It just happens to be that this is a woman who had a wife instead of had a husband. I found that if they were going to introduce that element, that was a very classy way to do it, to do it in such a way where it wasn't an in-your-face defining the character thing. It was simply, hey, this character happens to be lesbian and we're moving on. It's not even, they don't even use that term for it. It just, blink and you'll miss it. She had a wife, not a husband. That's it. What did you guys think of how they use it? And is this a good thing to see LGBT characters being infused into the Star Wars canon uh, as long as it's not necessarily maybe in, in an in-your-face way that feels heavy-handed? Well... I liked it. I, I think it was matter of fact. It was this is how it is. And I, I think that, you know, having numerous people I know in that community, I think that they would probably appreciate that it wasn't like, hey, look, look what we're doing. Look, hey, check this out. Look at this. I mean, yeah, the media made a big deal of it. But I think the way Kemp wrote it was just very very fluid very i use this word a lot but very organic uh-huh. and i have a question and i'm going to just throw this out is this the first time that we've gotten this you know the a um a gay character well, because me... i could swear in the um in the oh it, it's i in forget the new which, jedi order yeah the no it it's, wasn't the new jedi we're talking about it the the stuff. The, it's the first time in canon but not necessarily yeah. the first time in Star Wars in general. That's that was, was the angle I was going to come from because the other ones that we've gotten before were always done so subtly. You know, we had Goran Belvin or Goran Bevan, who was married to Medrit uh, Vasur, which that came out during New Jedi Order. Uh, you know, they were Mandalorians and stuff. That was a Travis introduction that she put in during the short story Practical Man. 
uh, which they ended up picking up again later. But in the Old Republic games, uh, the KOTOR games and stuff, they would have some characters in, well, I believe it's Tor, the Old Republic, that would have some characters in the background and stuff that were gay and lesbians. But they've all been introduced in that way. They're, they're just subtly there. Uh, you know, in that regard, they're not beating anyone over the head with it. They're just there living life. I mean, it, it isn't some uh, uh, agenda out there by the LGBT community trying to get their characters out there. They're just, just characters existing. And in a lot of ways, it's it's kind of what the uh, LB or the LGBT community wants, you know, just to be there. Yeah, I think that was what what got me about it. It's it's the fact that there is such a I mean, I, I don't think it would be a stretch to say that American society, and this, again, is coming from three Americans speaking here. We can think of, of American society because that's what we live in. Um, American society is much more divided now, it seems like, than we were, say, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, whether it's economic situations that changed, whether it's um, uh, racial situations flaring up here and there, whether it's seeing uh, interest groups with he with agendas really pushing on Washington and Washington, especially on the conservative side, really sort of pushing back. Uh, society seems to be, be becoming much more factionalized, uh, much more balkanized, I guess is the, is the political term for it. Whereas society itself, even though that's our perception of it, in real life, we're not really like that. In real life, people are just kind of people, and you're going to run into people of different races, different religions, different uh, sexual orientations, and a lot of times you're not going to realize that there's anything that makes them different from you. I mean, you would have to, of all the students that I had over the years, for instance, it really took students saying something to say, you know, I'm a gay individual for anyone to really realize it. You know, and of course, that's teenagers, you know, sort of defining themselves. They're a little more outspoken in many ways than adults tend to be. Um, but it was just interesting to see how as divided as society tries to make our different groups in society on a daily basis, you know, people are people. And Star Wars, for the longest time, had a hard time showing people as people and being diverse at the same time. Because, you know, we, we all have the joke, right, that back in the galaxy far, far away, back in the 80s, the only black guy apparently was Lando, and maybe there was one Cloud City guard or something. It was a big deal when Mace Windu shows up. Oh my gosh, he's a black character. Now we're seeing Star Wars sort of more representative, not just in canon, but to a degree in the later part of Legends with people like Ensign Nanda, um, where now we've got the diversity showing up, but it's done so in a way that is subtle. It's, as, as Jonathan said, it's matter of fact. It's people or people, here's this reference here. I don't know, I mean, you can make the argument that there are probably plenty of other characters in Star Wars stories in canon or in Legends that probably were gay characters or bisexual characters or you know characters of different ethnicities than we realize because for whatever reason their sexual orientation wasn't necessary to tell the story here they could just as easily have said her mate you know her yeah. uh, uh the, the the love of her life had died never say a name never say a gender and we never would have realized this character was designed to be a gay character but in Simply stating it, matter-of-factly, it becomes part of the tapestry of, hey, humans are humans. Um, it's just a question of how they handle it, it seems like. I don't think that... I think that this book got a relatively positive reception from the LGBT community and not within that community. Even those who uh, are particularly against the LGBT agenda, for instance, because it was done so subtly. If this had been something that really sort of slammed it home 
or or made a huge deal out of it. Mm-hmm. And I think Star Wars would have been accused of you know following this agenda or that agenda, and this book would have gotten a lot harsher treatment than it did. It's like Paul Kemp wanted the diversity because surely this was a conscious choice on his part. I highly doubt that this is someone forcing him to make this character a gay character. But even Kemp seems to have realized that this is about people. This is not about agendas, which it, I, I think allows this to play well without causing the, the firestorm that it could have among certain aspects of the Star Wars readership. Yeah, it's clearly the readership that brought the controversy. I mean, I remember before I got my hands on the books hearing about the controversy of the gay character. Uh, but then when you get to it, you're like, really, that that's the controversy? So clearly the people that were seeing the controversy were the people that had issue with a character like that showing up in their books, regardless of how it came down. And granted, those people may or may not have gotten over that fear by the time they read it. I'm assuming they did because, yeah, exactly. It could have been any change of name there. You know, the, the love of your life would have easily hid that away. I think it was a brilliant choice on Kemp's to do it the way he did it. And in fact... I'm okay, you know, slip a character like that in every now and again if you want. That was a brilliant way to do it. You don't have to beat it over anyone's heads. The the homophobes out there can still continue being phobic and do their thing and hide under their rocks. Everyone else can continue to move on like life's just moving on because that's what we had here. You know, and that one I think was the, the point of the memory for Morris was, you know, life goes on and you need to pick up the pieces. And you can't dwell on the past. I agree. I think that... Uh, Mark, like you, I heard that there was this controversy and I expected to be this big graphic, you know, presentation in the book. And I'm like, really? This is it? Yeah. Why the heck are people getting upset? This is stupid. And so, you know, why should they get upset at all in to begin with? I, I, I think I think I, I would have been a lot more um, disturbed, you know, when they talk about the ideas of, of prostitution and rape earlier in the book than the fact that the, the moth had a wife. Amen to that. I mean, and, and that's kind of the thing. It's almost like we look for things that are new and we look for things that are seminal moments in the development of the saga, especially now that now we have a new canon, a new continuity out there. Now new things are happening for the first time that may have been something we saw before, like with the Mandalorian characters being some of the first gay characters in Star Wars. And now we have this. I've seen the same thing to a degree. And, and I think this especially is, a, is an American thing because of how racial tensions have really ratcheted up in recent years because of things like uh, the Michael Brown case, like the Trayvon Martin case uh, and that sort of thing. But I'm seeing people reacting, for instance, to the other big recent "Ah!" moment, which was, holy crap, Han apparently may have had a wife. And Sana Solo is a black woman. And I'm seeing almost equal parts out there of people being like, I can't believe he, he may have had a wife. And wait a second, his wife is black? And I can't imagine that the people writing the story ever thought of it in a racial angle here. But it's just this, this is something new. I'm hoping that she winds up somehow tying into Lando so that we've got the, you know, uh, get a lot of guts coming here after what you pulled maybe <laughs> has to do with his sister or something. And it's something a lot more personal than just the Falcon, perhaps. Um, but people forget. I mean, and I bring this up in an essay that I'm doing about the Marvel series, the early Marvel issues um, for Sequart. Han had a hinted at relationship with a woman named Katya Mbwele back in the Marvel series, back in uh, the first Marvel annual. And nobody batted an eye at the fact that Han was hanging out with and perhaps had a relationship with this black woman you know, in this era of black exploitation films, even at the time. Um, well, that's because like nobody a, was reading the Marvel. Oh, well, that's true. 
Uh, it, it's as though, though, that we are, as fandom, we see things like this, and I want to say that we have a very hard time drawing a dividing line between things that are points of interest for discussion and, hey, this bears, uh, you know, this deserves some discussion on, say, diversity in Star Wars like we're doing now, as opposed to this is controversial. Like, we're, like internet fandom in particular has a very hard time dividing that you know, point of interest from point of controversy as if somehow they have to be the same thing. I think this is a book that does a very good job at showing that this can be a point of discussion and for broader uh, delving into the Star Wars galaxy and, and the social issues involved in trying to create a modern sci-fi fantasy tale without this having to be controversial. I'm not sure controversial is the right word that should have been applied to this when it hit so many news outlets so quickly that, oh my gosh, there's an LGBT character. Woo. The one thing that I kind of got from this book and, you know, especially when kind of looking at the end is that did anybody else really get the impression that the emperor was never, ca never cared about the free Ryloth movement? It was never important to him. This was all just an opportunity to put Vader through his paces and to really show him who's boss again. See, I saw him using it twofold. I, I saw him not really seeing the Ryloth movement as a threat, but yet. You know, I saw him using this as that test as a way to wipe out that threat, you know, reset the clock. I mean, he even I believe he says it to his vol there toward the end. Uh, and I, I thought that was, a, again, a brilliant play on Palpatine's part, you know, using something for multiple purposes. I mean, that's classic Sith. You know, I'll use the truth to lie to you or I'll lie to you by using the truth. Right. His line is uh, is ah, she begins to see now. Perhaps you thought the events today would spark a rebellion. Funny reference right back to the first episode of Rebels. Ah, you did. That was never going to happen, my dear. Your little movement was a candle that I encouraged you to light, and now it has gone out, igniting nothing. It's that, that interesting thing where Palpatine recognizes there's going to be threats to his authority, but he's willing to sort of fan the flames or allow the flames to be fanned of smaller movements to snuff them out, before they can merge together into something larger, which I think is what we're seeing here with what's happening in the Rebels cartoon series. That's where we're seeing these smaller flames start to grow together into something bigger, whereas here, or with the small group that was in Tarkin that takes place later this same year, it's small sparks and they're able to snuff them out quickly. So to, the, to Palpatine, I'm not sure it's so much it's the, you know, you're not a concern, so much as it's a, he's, again, he's manipulating the individuals involved trying to, to make them feel like they've got a chance so that he can then snuff them out easily. And as long as he's able to continue that process over and over again with these small groups, it's not going to be something he really needs to exert that much effort with. I mean, even take what happened with Siege of Lothal, uh, not to go into too much detail on it, but as we get towards the end of the, the episode, it's not going to be Vader throughout the entire second season chasing down the heroes. As we saw in the trailer, Inquisitors are going to get involved again. So even then, it seems as though Palpatine has this sense of, ah, you know, even that growing rebellion that's starting to form out there. Vader, you don't need to deal with that stuff right now. It's, it's very much like in Legends for a long time. It was the, the, don't focus on going after the last of the Jedi. Focus on your Imperial duties. It's that Palpatine has a sense of context for everything that Vader lacks. And it always yeah. leads him to see threats as... Uh, of a proportional size to where they, what they actually are in terms of a threat to him. 
it's like he sees all the little bonfires out there and he knows just the right ones to throw more gas on so it'll burn out really fast. You know, it, it's a brilliant angle. Uh, in fact, in, in that scene, you know, the one that you were just reading, I was surprised because I honestly had thought before that scene that, that Isval had already died. Uh, and I, that was the moment where I started to tear up the, the star by star moment, if you will. Uh, and it was about page 278 and, and Jonathan Davis did a great job. I mean, I, I won't even read everything he had because it, he goes back and forth between Cham's point of view to his Vol's point of view. And both of them for me were just heart wrenching, you know, when Cham's screaming, you know, I'm not going to leave her and so forth, but it was as Vader was standing in front of her. When Vader reached the steep-walled side of the quarry, he bounded up, caught a hole in some protuberance or other, crouched, and bounded up again. That's impossible, Gaul muttered, but he kept firing. Isfal knew better. She'd seen what Vader could do. Nothing he did surprised her. And now, he was coming for them. They kept firing leaning out over the lip of the quarry to fire down the steep side. But Vader's lightsaber turned the air red before him, and none of their shots so much as touched him. He leapt from one spot to the next, ascending, pausing only for a moment upon landing to tense before leaping again and ascending farther. How is he doing this? Gaul shouted. Vader's cape flowed out behind him as he came, and he looked to Isfal like some kind of mythological being, some dark spirit of death, come to take a tithe of lives. She couldn't let him take Chams. The movement needed him, and he had a daughter. She wouldn't. Get out of here, she said to Gaul and Cham. She looked down past Vader to the floor of the quarry. The firefight was already slowing. Gaul's fighters were dying or dead. She could hear the V-Wing streaking back toward them. Get out of here, she said. Now! Cham seemed not to hear her. He was firing rapidly at Vader, his teeth clenched, his skin flushed. Gaul! Get him out of here! She turned and looked back to see the V-Wings bearing down on them. Gaul followed her gaze, turned and saw the ships incoming. Come on, Cham! Gaul said, grabbing him by the shoulder. I'm not leaving! You go! Vader leapt up again, again. His eyes were fixed upward on Isval, on Cham. Go, damn it! Isval shouted. You have a daughter, Cham. Think of Hera. Take him, Gaul. Remember our deal. Go! She stood up, making herself plain to Vader. What are you doing? Cham exclaimed. Get down, Isval! She turned and smiled at him. Not a half smile, a full one. I'm thinking through an exit. I love you, Cham. Now get out of here! And with that, before Cham could say anything, she ran along the lip of the quarry away from them, firing at Vader with both blasters as she went. Isval! Cham called after her, but she ignored him. He loved her, too. He had for years. Do you remember me? Isval shouted down to Vader, still firing at him. Do you? 
I saw you on the Perilous before I blew it to hell. The sound of the V-Ring streaking in sounded like a scream. And, it, you know, it continues to go on from there. But from that moment on, I mean, that was the moment I broke. Jonathan Davis did such a great reading of those characters and the, the music, everything. The, as you said, Jonathan, the production of that was just so good that it pushed me that spot. I know, Nathan, you know, when I mentioned it, you're like, yeah, really? I kind of saw it coming. I did see it coming. But again, Jonathan Davis, he just he nailed it in the acting of the characters. Each character, the emotion that each one had. I, I, it, it broke me, man. I crumbled. I didn't see it. I mean, for some reason, the end of this book didn't have that kind of emotional warmth. The end of Dark Disciple will when we talk about it, but not this one. Because I expect, I think, like Jonathan did, I didn't expect Chom to make it out of this. I expected I it to either. be that Hera was going to grow up as an orphan hearing about the legends of what her father had done once he was going to appear in this book. Um, I'd find it, the end of the book, to an extent, to me, I don't say, I want to say it has been cheapened. I don't think that's the right word for it, but it comes off as more of a meh kind of thing to me because we get that great sacrifice for Isfal being captured. We see her being questioned. We see the emperor making his snide comments like I quoted, and then she winds up dying. And then the last little chunk gives us a very quick insight into Vader's character, but at the same time is kind of like a flipping the bird to everybody involved in the entire story along the way. And that Vader talks about how you know, his master was right to administer the test. It explained why his master had shown so little of his true power throughout the day. Perhaps he'd wanted Vader to rely on himself to overcome the challenges they faced, or maybe he just wanted to seem weaker than he was to draw out any treacherous ambitions, etc., etc. And Vader is ordered to go slaughter the people there. Right? He says, uh, you know, he ignited his lightsaber and strode toward the cave, his mind drifting back to another day, a day when he strode into the Jedi Temple filled with nothing but younglings. He'd slaughtered them then, and he would slaughter the Twi'leks now. Uh, and this idea that he's doing what is sort of against his nature, but doing what he had done before because he's again, acceding to Palpatine's demands. That scene reminded me, when rereading it, of the great line out of Darth Vader number five from Marvel. You, know, you will forgive Lord Vader. He is sensitive on the topic of children, which cracked me up. <laughs> um, but at the end, it's the last lines. Once Vader kills all these people, it's well done, old friend. And now let's move on to more important things. Sort of a, F you, Twi'leks, F you, Chom. This meant nothing. You're nothing. And I don't know, for whatever reason, that ending left me feeling like, oh, okay. Yeah, I like where it sets up Chom to go in the future. And I think, again, it's it had more clearly defined factions than what we're used to in the recent books. Um, even if they're not directly in confrontation over and over again. It was a fun ride of a book, and I'd recommend it for those looking for a fun book, particularly one that focuses on Vader in a way that we hadn't seen much, because he captures Vader better than anyone I can think of in recent memory. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, that ending does a very good job of saying, but in the end, it's all just kind of a blip on the radar, kind of. It was all a test for Vader, what feels like yet again a test for Vader, albeit not necessarily something we see as much in the canon as we saw in Legends. And it all gets relegated to, these are all just side consequences, side effects, and collateral damage of Palpatine trying to show how awesome he is to Vader so Vader doesn't step up to him. And in that sense, it felt like that element of it that becomes the overarching purpose of all of it felt like something that was done so often in Legends that I was like, oh, that was why? I wanted something more 
in that sense. I guess it, it, it's new for canon, but it's so overdone. Palpatine having to put his his boot on Vader's throat and remind him of his place in this particular era. See, and, and I get where you're coming from with that, because as an EU fan, that is the crux of our issue. I do, though, I think it gets back to Palpatine's you know, ability to see the future. You know, he knows Vader's going to eventually betray him. And, and I like that throughout the book, there's like three or four times where he's specifically talking to Vader and he practically, he practically calls Vader a traitor. You know, he mentions the fact that you betrayed the Jedi and things of that nature. And he's constantly testing, you know, giving him opportunities to betray him as a Sith apprentice would. And they even talk about that where Vader knows his place as an apprentice is to eventually take down his master. So I like the fact that they're still keeping that focus. But yeah, you're right. I mean, as fans of the EU, we have seen it a lot before. But I think that's where when I go into any new book right now, I'm, I'm having to remind myself of that to put that that naysay side of myself behind me and like, look, I, I, I know we're going to run into this, but we're going to have to get over it. I got to look at it as the clean slate. And in that regard, this hasn't been told. And I liked how it came about. Yeah, a little bit. Um, I think this book will I'm hoping that they have almost a direct sequel to it, because I think that there are a lot of things that can be picked up. You know, Nathan, you said how this ending really it didn't leave you satisfied. It was like a bad dessert to a good meal. And I can see that, but I see it also is is almost laying the groundwork for a really good sequel. I mean, we have the the core characters, we have the moth, we have Cham. You know, we, we know where we need to go or where you would hope that these characters kind of go t- go toward and that would be, you know, the beginning of Rebels and maybe why Hera is not with the, you know, on Ryloth anymore with the Twi'leks. I think, I think they could really do a lot with this, but you're right. It, it ended almost too quick. And this is a problem I see with a lot of authors. Um, John Grisham is another author that I enjoy quite a bit, but also has this problem. He never really knows how to end a, a story. And I think that's kind of the problem here. That they're, you know, you, you're, you're telling all this intricate, you're telling all this intricate tale and giving all this information and you're getting very, and I think all three of us are very, we're very, very involved and engaged in this story. And how do you break that? How do you end that? And I think he didn't do it as well as he could have. So and that all being said, it sounds like we all enjoyed the book. Um, none of us necessarily thinking that it's essential yet, but certainly one that those who are interested in this type of story should check out. So it gets a recommendation, looks like. Uh, you guys? Oh, for me, definitely. It was a fun read and engaging, not only for me, but as I said, for my boys. And I think, as you said, Nathan, it may not be an essential read yet, but definitely, but definitely worth a look. Yeah, that's why I'm going with the quintessential read. I I truly think that this one down the road is going to grow in the fans' eyes. I think it will become more of a linchpin of what's going on with with Rebels, or at least have some linchpin-esque background for Hera's character, especially, uh, or an idea of where the Rebel fleet has grown from. Um, I I think that there's a lot of stuff that's going to play back onto this. If Rebels has shown us one thing this year, is that nothing's being left behind in this new canon. Everything is playing in some direction. And I think that this book, Paul S. Kemp, has given us a lot to play with. Uh, It was a very fun read, and it was really cool getting into the perspective of Vader and Palpatine once more. 
Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. Special thanks to you, Jonathan, for coming out and hanging out with us. Now's a good time to drop off any contact information that you have. If you want to talk to me about Rebels, about books, or about anything Star Wars, or anything at all, you can drop me a line at jonathan at starwarsfanworks.com. And remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division of Podcasts, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Zoom, Stitcher, and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages, at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in your search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. It's our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans, so if you guys have any Star Wars and or Legends questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWorks.com. Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention to you our Audible trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash Report, our sponsors will give you a free trial run of Audible to see what they're all about. You've got more than 100,000 titles to pick from. You can explore the Star Wars universe or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate because Audible members, they can exchange any book within 12 months. That's one year with no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making that switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark Whistler. And Nathan. And Jonathan. Saying thanks for listening and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that the next time Palpatine wants to test Vader, he'll simply say, come at me, bro. Or what are the odds that Palpatine wipes out Ryloth before we get to Empire Strikes Back? Belcor started out as an interesting character, but as time went on, he became very one note yeah. for me. Yeah, yeah I, I, like, well, I like this. Save it for the show! Yeah. Jonathan always <laughs> says, save it for the show! Yes, yes. Bump, bump. Oh, and see? And there we go. I thought you were going to take a second. I thought, were, I thought you were setting me up for a musical cue. Bum, bum, bum. Alright, let's play. <laughs> Damn it! Third time's a charm. That's right, Whistler. Oh, hang on. To... I'm getting a huge audio feedback. I'm getting like a thumbing. Did anybody else get that? I got it, but I was muted, so it wasn't me. Okay, so you, you might want to... Whatever you're using for the Whistler thing might need to be held back further or something, because there was a kind of thing that happened as soon as you got as soon as you got to starting the sound. Right, let's see if it goes away this time. Mark, sorry, you're, you're cut this out, but you were just starting to get that rumble behind you again. So I'm wondering if it's, it's like the distance from the microphone or something. It wasn't bad, but it, I started to notice it like, reverbing again. Damn it. Is it still doing it? it? I know the other night my microphone had to be unplugged a few times. Huh. All right, so let me throw this into another side here. Ah, motherfucker. <laughs> ah, no. Blocked. Cold I guess I'll... Collar can suck my... I got it. I got it. 
Aren't you a fan on or something that's causing that rumble? No, there's nothing here. I oh, mean, so so strange. Weird as hell. It's like a like just low under everything. I think the noise reduction will knock it out, but it's just. Well, I'm gonna unplug my mic and see if that'll do it anyway. I can't hear it. No, I just now. How's it coming through? Uh, I'm not. And, I'm not hearing the rumble. Well, that's good. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, oh, what the hell is his name? The the, the fat blue twilight. Orn Frita. Orn. Uh -huh. It's like Ahsoka. He called her Snipes sometimes, and and it goes into the Snaps! whole. Wow, you guys just rambled. Uh, I had something too. I think... Broke your concentration. Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you all once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. Special thanks to you, Jonathan, for uh, coming out. You are reverbing really bad as if, again, as if talking into a fan or farting at the time. Damn. All right, I'm going to unplug my mic again. I'm not sure what the fuck is going on. Did you have beans last night? Any better? At all? No? Yes? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, it's fine.